0: Gresham College presents Thinking Theologically About Modern Art, Part 6 Discussion with Lord Harrys and Professor Ben Quash. Uh,
1: Roger, rather than um, Ben and I hogging this uh, whole session, uh, there's a, a slightly different format to involve other people more. Uh, I'm just going to make, uh, set out briefly. Uh, one issue which has arisen in my mind as a result of uh, hearing these uh, talks uh, and open up, see if anybody else has got any comment on that. Then Ben is going to simply share with us one issue which has arisen in his mind, see if anybody got any comment. Then I thought uh, we might give some of the other speakers an opportunity to do the same if they would like uh, to do so. Uh, and, but of course there'll be opportunity for everybody who wants to reflect on anything. Now the the issue that I want to begin by raising is is one which has long been on my mind ever since I first started thinking about these uh, issues and it arose right in the beginning of Ben's lecture on the desublimation of modern art uh, when he quoted the lecture I think from Wall Studies about how uh, photos of the attack on Baghdad had, had made it look kind of beautiful, uh, and she thought that we needed to get away from that in order to show the real devastation that, that war uh, brings brings about. Uh, and I'm sure that's absolutely that's absolutely right in principle. But it seems to me that the problem is that once you start to bring art into it, whether you like it or not, in some sense... You're going to, in the wider sense of the word, commas, beautify things. Um, because art by its nature is bounded, and once you bound something, then and you make it art, you put in something which corresponds to the me- medieval balance, symmetry and, and clarity, which are certain aspects of, be- of beauty not all beauty, but certain aspects of, of, of beauty. Uh, and therefore your attempt to show the total devastation of something uh, actually uh, is somehow made consolatory. And I cannot help bringing to mind, for example, uh, that very famous remark uh, when the full horrors of the Holocaust came uh, to light, uh, that after Auschwitz there can be no more poetry, because poetry, of course, is consolatory. And for me, it comes to uh, a, a kind of focus in the challenge with, with the crucifixion. The crucifixion, the most cruel form of tur- torture that's ever been devised by human beings. Yet we've made it a beautiful work of art. What on, what on earth are we doing? How can we resolve this? Uh, and even a famous picture like Guernica, uh, which was meant to show the horrors of war. Actually, because it's a work of art, you know, it has some of those elements of balanced form, elegance uh, 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 about it in some sense it is consolatory and there is a fundamental problem here it's one actually I tried to address in the last chapter of my book on art and the beauty of God which I'm not going to repeat here but has anybody got any thoughts about that really fundamental difficulty? Ah somebody has, yes good Um, there's a, a microphone coming yeah some
2: years ago I commissioned uh, or tried to commission from art in churches uh, the Stations of the Cross to be done as realistically and, and as challengingly as the artist could, could could do um, and as contemporary as possible. And in the doing of that he failed to do it because he felt that the, the, the content was in a sense too strong. But one reflected in the process of that that one way to 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 make the stations of the cross acceptable was to put them into a golden frame that in some sense maintained a sort of numinousness about it that that allowed them to be challenging and incarnational but still made them safe and able to to be viewed now, if you go to St John on Bethnal green you 'll see another artist 's attempt uh, to 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 do the stations of the cross. Um, whether or not that has succeeded in being uh, conducive to worship or just frightening um, is up to the viewer. <laughs>
1: Uh, thank you for that. But though I still think it leaves us with the fundamental problem. <laughs> um, it does. I, I don't think it has resolved. My own view, as, you know, as I sketched out in the Art and the Beauty of God, is that I think this resolvable is only this issue is only resolvable ultimately in terms of Christian theology, uh, and that the cross is inseparable from the from the from the resurrection. I take an extreme, totally unbelievable point of view that all art is ultimately grounded in the cross and the resurrection of Christ, but that would be difficult to argue in the modern world. Um, another, another reaction to it from... yeah,
3: Coming back to the... Uh, to try to answer your question, uh, Bishop, and uh, um, come back to the question of the, the, the God-shaped hall, um, I wonder whether the um, move by artists to um, express... Uh, divine or religious um, concepts in very abstract terms nowadays doesn't reflect um, a wider dilemma facing us all, and particularly uh, people um, who are Christians and uh, and interested in the church. And that is, um, if I'm right, um, increasing uncertainty about fundamental Christian beliefs, um, which I think permeates our society nowadays, um, with you know relatively few people going to church, and even um, divisions amongst devout church going people about um, the the inherent and deep meanings associated with Christianity. Whether it is uh, you know Bishop Jenkin talking about um, the resurrection being conjuring tricks with bones, uh, whether it's, um, you know, whether the sun goes round the earth or the earth goes round the sun, or whether even in our present day, um, whether um, two people who are of the same sex have the right to be married in church just as anybody else, when there is so much now division amongst um, all, on all those levels, which go to my mind go to the very um heart of what we believe hmm. um uh it's 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 inevitable almost and uh, and you know, probably a good thing um certainly um uh an intriguing and delightful thing to see um so much of this um art whether it's windows or in sculptures uh, Or in uh, pews and and concrete work, expressed in much more abstract terms, within and from which we gain ourselves whatever it is we want to gain from it, without being told that this is right or wrong.
1: Thank you very much. I mean, I think you're you're absolutely uh, right. Of course, has been brought out a number of times. Uh, that, that, that there is, there is, what, there is no what Peter Fuller, the art critic, called no symbolic order in our time, no big story, uh, so that people are, are very uh, ill-informed and, and uh, ignorant when they uh, go into into churches. That is one fundamental problem. It's obviously related also to the lack of belief that you you point out. There's a one, there's an even older but and much more difficult problem that is that how in a, a, a finite limited mortal world you actually indicate something beyond the world how can you do that visually and iconography i mean that is the problem you know which roger was indicating one of the aspects that he and artists like him have to to wrestle with i think um uh, I, I don't know um, how we i I'll just take one more and then we'll open up with with other people uh, uh, uh,
4: with Ben next, yes. It's really a reflection on the boundedness you talked about, the fact yeah. that something's set within a frame. Yeah. It occurs to me, and it's come through several times during the day, that there's actually two ways at least in which a particular work of art may come out of its frame. First, when a subsequent artist actually derives from the original work of art a response and interpretation that actually makes the original work of art a living thing. And there's a whole community Mm. of discourse arises there. Mm. The same thing happens Mm. within scripture where the prophets are picked up in the New Testament and and so on. It happens with poetry Mm. and music and novels and and so on. And uh, the other is the way that the picture or the sculpture, or whatever it is, comes out of its boundedness in the response hmm. that's actually made by those who engage with it, so that art is not simply the original works of art, it's actually the responses that are yeah, made, no, both I like by that. other artists and I by like
1: them. Yeah, I like that very much, and I'm, I'm very fond of the modern translation of the Greek word poema, which Greek, which uh, uh, St. Paul uses. I love the translation uh, of that as, we are God's work of art, and you could... So, Ben, you ha- share a thought with
5: us and see what was happening. I've been, I've con- continued to think about the question at the beginning of the day on context, and uh, and Francis's paper in particular showed us a lot of the contexts in which uh, the experience of particular works of art happens. Um, and so did so did Jonathan actually in church contexts. So one of the things that I. I I'd like to put out is the importance of thinking about the relationship between architecture and some of the works of art that we've been looking at it's particularly near the top of my mind because I spent yesterday um, at a small symposium with um, a mixture of architects and architectural theorists Um, uh, Roger Scruton was there and, and a very interesting architect and writer about architecture called Christopher Alexander I don't know if any of you know his work Uh, who has a very strong account of the need for the spiritual in in architecture. Um, And and pretty much everybody there was extremely rude about modernism in architecture, Um, and in particular the fact that these were not humane spaces, that generally modern architecture is not particularly interested in traditional ways of making a humane environment. Um, And the little details that they picked up on, which they thought did contribute to a humane environment, include things like mouldings. Which were, reson- which were relentlessly attacked in modernism, um, and the fact that sort of certain delicate mouldings, as one person put it yesterday, um, show that a building is not just about the materials from which it's built, but, for example, the light, which is captured by mouldings, and um, uh, the way that light and darkness can become articulate in the mouldings of a piece of architecture, and so on. So the, this, this, the emphasis of this rather sort of reactionary group of people with whom I thoroughly enjoyed being, I have to say, um, was the um, importance of dwelling places, places you could really be at home in, and, as Scruton put it, rest, places where you can rest. Um, so I want to ask uh, something about whether the, um, whether we expect significantly different things from architecture uh, and from painting, for example, or other forms of visual art, and if we do, why, um, or whether we should be holding uh, the exercise of the making of visual art to some of the same standards that we, we, we would expect from architecture, an architecture that we could rest in and feel at home with. Would that be inevitably a betrayal of the seriousness and intensity of art um, uh, in, in service of comfiness, uh, or not? That's a question for, for you. I don't know if anybody wants to comment on that.
6: Well... Um, if I could tie that in with um, Bishop Richard's initial comments. Um, I, I actually did, didn't find the images put up, was it, by George Patterson of the Nash's um, We Are Making a New World, of the stumps of trees in the war-torn landscape, and thinking also of his Menin Road and other iconic images from the First World War, which really bring home what happened at that Time in a way that perhaps black and white photographs don't do—that they're not consolatory. That they do um, do more than that. They are bounded, yes, but precisely because they are bounded and have formulated something about that—in both cases, first-hand experience. I'm thinking also of Nevinson's—that they do seem to catch something that endures, that has a duration, and therefore forms part of our historical knowledge of that period. So in that case, I don't think we're necessarily resting in them. If I think even when Nevinson went, moved away from his more so-called semi vorticist style, which so suited the war pictures, ironically, and, 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 and reverted to a realist style in order to portray... I forget the, the, the famous name of it, the, um, uh, the, the Paths of Glory, I think the title is. You see uh, soldiers lying face down dead in the mud. That was, of course... Um, Um, censored and when he exhibited again he got a huge strip of paper and wrote censored on it and pasted it over the painting and exhibited it so the fact that it was actually rejected as something that was unacceptable confirms the sense that that although they were trying to paint the unpaintable, as indeed anyone who tries to approach the Holocaust in the terms of a memorial event, whether it's an architectural memorial or a painting or a poem, whatever, is facing the impossible, the incommunicable. Nevertheless, these things do have value and aren't always con- consolatory. Mm.
5: Just, just a thought on the gold frame. I mean, the, the, that's a, one sort of boundary or border around um, a, an image of, of horror. Um, but actually there's an entirely different sort of border or, or context around it, which is the activity that goes on in, in a church, you know, the people who might be doing the Stations of the Cross or whatever. And it seems to me that if you're going to confront some, somebody with an image of profound horror, the humane thing to do is also give them something to do in response to it or help them with their response to it. And... Um, and this in a sense is simply to echo what, what Richard has said that, that, that the practices of Christian liturgy and particularly the remembrance of the cross in the context of the Eucharist are a set of practices that can, can, can conceivably help one then to a context for a, an image of horror that can give one something to do having seen it um, because otherwise one's completely disabled by it. But that applies. Yeah. Or a confident
2: uh, group yes. of, 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 of participants. Yes. What I'm worried about is that, in fact, uh, we are going to be moving into an age where there is a lack of confidence in the church and uh, the iconoclasts, uh, whether they, um, ha- however they enact their their their. Um, action, you know, their iconoclasms or <laughs> whatever, mm. um, that that we will be moving into a period where 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 the whole is is filled with something less than God. <laughs> it's
5: always <almost laughs> the opposite by, by of by iconoclasm, them. isn't it? it, it the icons will become the reassurance, and, and the stuff that is hard to give form and boundary to, is the stuff that will get broken up or, or attacked. You know. The, mm. George, can I just invite George's response before? Yeah. Do you want to take the podium? And then we can sort of... You can then become the next.
7: Yeah, it was uh, just going back to uh, the, the point that was brought up again by Lord Harris about the, the shock and awe, as it were, and then touched on again by Francis. And, and of course, we always see things in context, and sometimes we both in general and perhaps in, the, in this room today, talk about our reactions to pictures and images as if they're without context, which which they never are. Um, and so thinking of the, the, the Paul Nash, uh, and of course for people who are familiar with the Victorian Edwardian iconography of war, often translated into a medieval environment and with knights and shining armour, those kinds of images really did shock people because that wasn't what they thought they ought to be seeing but and of course it's it, it's become increasingly difficult i think for visual art to to have that kind of effect um, yet with regard to adorno's saying about the holocaust i believe recently george steiner has said with regard to the, the holocaust that there are only two um, cultural monuments that really matter and that's cloud lanceman's Um, Compilation of survivors' memoirs, Shoah, the film, uh, and the poetry of Paul Chelan. And of course, the poetry of Paul Chelan, extremely difficult though it is, is in a way revelatory, uh, I think. But for me, paradoxically, but this depends on context. I mean, the only works of visual art that really do anything to, as it were, cut through the crap and, and the frame are paradoxically. Images I've seen both in the Ghetto Museum in Prague and in the Siege of Leningrad Museum in St. Petersburg are children's drawings, uh, which may be of people playing in a field under sunshine or doing stuff with cows or whatever else happens in children's drawings. In the one case, drawings produced by children in Theresienstadt concentration camp and in the other, by children in this city that was besieged for three years where a million people died, a very largely forgotten event of history outside Russia, I think, and you know, and you see underneath the picture uh, this little page. You know, it's a new year. We d- maybe we can look forward to a jolly summer. And then, you know, by Oleg, age nine, Oleg was killed in an artillery barrage on March the fifteenth, or, or whatever. And you know, that that tells you what it's about in in a way. And partly for this reason, I mean, I don't watch any. War films relating to the present conflicts uh, in Iraq or Afghanistan, because I believe that these films are largely geared to making us at home believe we know what's going on, and of course we don't. Uh, in 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 that sense, and we like to. Uh, it was very interesting for me to reflect, of course, that for my parents' generation, perhaps for some people here who really did leave through the Second World War. Those films did not come with the kind of realism that contemporary war films do. In mean, these days, war films have to have limbs being blown off and one sees the torn arteries and, and the rest of it uh, and so on, whereas in the 1950s, for films that were being produced for people who had lived through these things didn't actually need to see those uh, kind of images apart from the fact that there wasn't the technological sophistication to enable filmmakers to do it. I think, actually, if they'd wanted to do it, they could have because film's been pretty clever uh, all the way through with the, with, with the power of illusion. So, in some ways, context is all, I think, and feeds into to how we, we react to things. Right? But, and I think there are, are realities, including the crucifixion, uh, which nine times out of ten visual images will take us so far and, and won't get us all the way. And, of course, even ones at work can become routinized. I mean, I guess a lot of us now have seen uh, Grunewald's crucifixion innumerable times and will refer to it uh, as an image that, as it were, tears, tears the veil. Um, but once you've seen it a hundred times, maybe it's difficult for it to do that. But I remember teaching a class in theology of art in, in Denmark and, as it were, suddenly showing that image to a class, none of whom had seen it before, and there was literally a you know, from all these, and they're older than our students, they're all mostly in their 20s going for ordination, quite mature people and they were shocked uh, by, by that image which you know cut right across what people expect from an ecclesiastical uh, representation of it so so context context is not all but, but, but all these images come to us with a certain context both our own social context and the context of the other pictures that we've seen what we know about the events and as Lord uh, Harris was saying that clearly Someone looking at a crucifixion with a theological or a faith position that stands in the tension of crucifixion resurrection is going to interpret it differently from someone who doesn't. Do you
1: want
7: to raise any other points? To, about it well, well, I was very interested in what Roger said at the end, which having having flagged his uh, conservative credentials through through his talk, he suddenly revealed his modernism in his last. A line where he said, I paint what I like. You know? <laughs> I mean, I don't think many 16th or 17th century painters would have said, I paint what I like. Uh, I mean, in, in, in a sense, but also I, I thought his talk illustrated beautifully, really, the, the, the way in which the, the three dimensions of time play into both the production and the reception of, of art. And for, from my particular biased point of view, perfectly reflect Heidegger's view. Uh, as to the way in which these three dimensions interrelate with the primacy on the future, that we always approach the world with a certain end for something. We've come today to hear some lectures, to learn something, to find something out, and that expectation, in a sense, whether it's fulfilled, disappointed or whatever, conditions everything we happen. So, you know, Roger starts to study art or to paint, starts to do a, a new work, and yet that throws him back To the tradition? How can one orientate oneself in in relation to this uh, new thing? And of course, it's interesting, even breakthrough modern artists like Manet and Picasso are constantly in dialogue with the past and recycling the work of of previous artists. So, this dialogue between future and past then comes down to the present and, well, what is it I've got to do? What is it I'm going to do now? Uh, And this thing of presentness here is a job that has to be done and, and produced. And it seems to me that that's, in, in some sense, more that creative moment is, is more prevalent uh, than, as it were, concerns with certain ideas of beauty. And what matters at that point is really responsibility uh, and perhaps that's, yeah, that the, the, the artist is prepared to take the responsibility that goes with producing the work and to identify themselves as an artist uh, in a sense, with it. And sometimes that might mean at a later point in their career disowning it and tearing it up or putting it on the fire and saying, no, that's not what we we, we should be doing. Uh, and that creativity and responsibility, I, I think, is, and to use a sort of very old-fashioned word, a, a very ennobling uh, aspect of, of, of art and religiously, in a, in a sense, in potentially instructive Even where the content may not be overtly religious.
8: What what I've been thinking is actually um, relates in a sense to what you've been talking about, sort of consolation. Because I I think I wanted to sort of slightly speak up for consolation. Um, I quite obviously it's true that there is false consolation. That I mean, one of the the points that, that Jonathan Sachs makes in the book that I was mentioning is. Um, I think it's George Steiner, who talks about um, people consigning people to the gas chambers and then going to listen to Bach, and how difficult it is to reconcile those, those sort of two things, um, and what a sort of problem in a sense, certainly for Steiner that that has been. Um, but I want to, but um, what Sachs replies to that um, is, is that the search for meaning is something that defines what human beings are and what they need and what they do. And simply, I mean, what people who have been through trauma need to do is to somehow process that and to actually make sense of it in their lives. Um, And the art that just presents you with more trauma doesn't help you to do that. Um, Consolation is actually something we... Real, a true consolation is something that we need. And the art that actually somehow... Can give us that is is well what we mean by grace I suppose um, so that's that was just my <laughs> reflection on that and how that comes is is different for for everyone and so I I always have, th- have thought of of um, you know what I'm doing as actually having a key as it were which opens particular locks. Uh, and doesn't open others. And I think all of us, in different ways, sort of have kind of keys like that. That I know my paintings may open a key for someone. Um, for others, will be yet completely useless. But that's that's just the way life is and, and the way it works. And if it can open the key for someone, then even if it's only one person, that's that's fine by me. So anyway, that was just my little reflection. <laughs>
6: Just a, one or two things that I wanted to throw, but um, I wonder if I could just begin by mentioning a set of uh, stations of the cross that have been made for a very tiny church uh, on the border of Herefordshire and Wales at Discoid um, which uh, the idea for it which was put, put to the vicar who accepted it was that an artist in the area should go around with his friends and ask if they would like to take part, each one doing one of the 14 stations and to his surprise Um, the people readily agreed regardless of really what their faith was or was not and as a result of that um, they put the titles of all the stations in a bowl and and asked them to pull one out and they did say well if you're really unhappy with what you pulled out you can negotiate but interestingly enough (laughs) when people pulled them out they all felt that that had been somehow given to them and they stayed with it and I was fortunate to be present at a, an evening where they all met in um, a person's house after they'd all finished these pictures. I think there we were only 12 of the 14 artists there. And there was sort of some buffet, food for supper and so on, and we all walked around looking at them. And then each artist spoke in turn about the experience of whether it had been difficult or easy to try and find the solution and what it had meant to them. And what was interesting was, of course, that instead of having one artist doing all the Stations of the Cross... Which risks um, for the for the uh, people in the church, you know, perhaps not being what they can respond to. There was this great variety of styles and media um, there, and quite some very very original in one or two cases interpretations of the actual scene, and it did make for a very lively and fascinating journey, and it also made the old story come alive and suddenly seem relevant again in a fresh way because it was interpreted through the eyes of all these um, very different contemporary artists. So I do think it's an extraordinary thing, and because they're non-permanent, you know, they, there's no need for a faculty of any sort like that, and they're not there forever, they're just there for the specific period of time. So it, it's a wonderful way of refreshing the, the um, passion story through at uh, that period with, through art I think what I am worried about if I may bring it up is the, is the need for the contemporary and be, partly because I teach art history in an art school a, a, in a fine art department I see these um, external examiners walking around the degree show agonizing over what is the contemporary and presumably it changes from year to year and it's not easy to identify But um, I noticed in I think George's talk that you said our art cannot be a vehicle for timeless eternal truths and you went on to ask um, uh, can an art that is modern also be genuinely religious? Um, And I suppose that I felt that there's endless more discussion perhaps to be had about this layering of time in art and whether or not something that does fully engage with globalisation, the internet, the things that are determining our life today. Um, it risks being really fashionable, something that won't last, that won't have the duration, say, of a of a great greater paintings, or or you know, we'll manage to grapple with things that are important. So I think that's my only
1: would you like just to say something about the experience of teaching art history to these art students? And, I mean, that,
6: yes. What's your experience of,
1: of <laughs> their, their understanding of art?
6: Well, if, they, if they're coming in as practising fine artists, they usually have done well enough at school A level to get into a university, and they have certain skills which are, they've made their own and which they hold to, cling to quite strongly. So one of the things that not myself, but the uh, uh, fine art teachers try to do is to um, remove those um, those things that they rely on and feel safe with and secure with on sort of projects like asking them for one or two weeks to do nothing but make things with found objects or found materials so they can't resort to these personal skills and so on so the thing is partly a stripping down and rethinking we trying to get through but the other thing i think is talking about say contemporary critical issues alerting them to some of the debates that are going on which have been foregrounded by some of the words used in the talks today the disconnect the word that you use ben is something that i've heard used quite a lot recently and um it it's it is a sort of changing atmosphere or intellectual climate which a fine artist i suppose does have to at least be aware with even if at the end they decide for their own for good reasons to reject and to say no these are not the issues i want to work with um but we do—we are all immersed in, in, in the ills. What was that wonderful quote somebody had about breathing in the? Was it yours? Breathing in the uh, germs and pleasures of yeah, that's <laughs> society. Yes, that's right. And um, I think because we're um, living in society, it's very difficult to be free of the, the sicknesses of society. We are, in some way. Um, uh, um implicated by them, so to totally try to turn our back on what is modern or you know um of this moment is is perhaps not the most positive way forward for the young artists but
1: thank you very much. And, uh,
0: Uh, yeah, just a few uh, very brief points. Um, one, I think, um, kind of spinning off of what I was talking about, is uh, that in my in my thesis, I'm quite kind of resistant to the idea of the church becoming um, a cultural space, shall we say, a space where you know art is kind of flowing through its turnstiles. Um, which you know, it's not such an unusual metaphor since these days you have to pay to get into a cathedral, whilst the the art gallery tends to be free. <laughs> and so, you know, I have this sense, you know, as Jameson, Frederick Jameson talked about, the cultural logic of late capitalism. There's this sense that the church, I think, is in danger of becoming just another kind of cultural space where we, you know, imbibe more more culture. Um, furthermore, kind of cultural pr- culture promoted as part of a cultural economy, of course. Um, and I, I sort of think of the Millennium Bridge as being like this sort of Umbilical cord, or something of a sort of the parent to the child, and this sort of art flowing across, you know, from one side to the other, pouring into St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, <laughs> so, I suppose the point I would make, but I don't know how other people feel about this, is my feeling is that I would rather see, in a way, you know, fewer works of art going into churches, but works that are very sensitive and, and very thoughtfully, you know, worked through rather than the cathedral becoming a place that is just a kind of rolling programme of, of cultural events and, and art exhibitions. So when you have a work like Alison Watts, uh, you know, a single painting, sensitively placed, that, for me, I think has far greater power than, um, say, Gloucester putting on yet another big exhibition range throughout the space. So that's one point. Another point, just coming back to something uh, George said, talking about creativity, <clears throat> something that Peter Fuller uh, also said where he was kind of fulminating against a lack of creativity and he talked about um, the art-shaped hole that very often exists within, within kind of contemporary, uh, contemporary art. <laughs> and I must admit, I do, I do rather kind of sympathise with that notion. I think his idea is that art uh, has kind of disappeared and theory has kind of flowed in to take its space. Or if not theory, then, I don't know, a whole load of other stuff which, in his view at least, doesn't really uh, constitute art. And then the only other point I would make is that I was conscious that what I was talking about seemed in many respects to be sort of diametrically opposed to what Ben was talking about in the sense that he was talking about incarnation and the body and I was talking about kind of God being found in the void, or God as the void. Um, And it then reminded me, I'd forgotten at the time, but it reminded me of kind of why I think Badiou is interesting. And it's a comment, actually, from Terry Eagleton in his book uh, where he's criticising the new atheists. And he speaks, to some degree, quite approvingly of Badiou's ideas. And he says this, he says, truth is what cuts against the grain of the world. And that, I feel, is what Badiou is trying to suggest. And that, to me, seems to be kind of an important idea, Um, And so one of the other things which I'm quite supportive of is the notion of sort of temporary works within churches rather than permanent works. Um, Not exclusively, but I think temporary works can be extremely uh, useful in producing work potentially that kind of cuts against the grain, cuts across the grain, um, and allows a greater degree of risk and I seem to recall in your most recent book, George, you mentioned something about the importance of risk in art production. And that if art does not involve some degree of risk, it becomes, I think, simply product. Is that what you said? I think that's right. You know, and yeah. it
7: relates back to what I said before about you know, the local art show. I mean, I think mm. you, know, you can go around the art show in your church hall or, or wherever and you can see something that's maybe not at a technically high level. You can somehow pick up that person's taken that risk and really done something which connected yeah. to what I was saying about responsibility as well and is prepared to go with it
0: mm. yeah. yeah yeah.
7: it's always very exciting when you see that whether it's as it were someone who's great and famous doing it or, or whether it's you know
0: mm. yeah, I think...
7: were, uh, who took art last year
0: yeah, yeah I think uh, I remember reading Hans Feibusch who you know you can see his stations across just around the corner from here um, and his great mural of course and he talked about the importance of responsibility on the part of the artist which goes along with kind of risk taking on the part of the church I think those are two quite well matched you know, ideas really
1: thank you very much and, uh, we've just got a few minutes to see who'd like to make any reflections on a, anything that has emerged for them from the day there's a lady there I don't think has spoken yet
6: Thank you. Um, Thinking about the God-shaped hole, I was then trying to imagine what shape this hole would have. (laughs) And creativity. And then I was thinking, well, actually, we know what the Greek gods looked like. We know what Roman gods looked like. We know what Hindu gods looked like. We know what Buddha looked like. Why weren't we creative enough to... Create our gods' images of them? Or have we, in a way, when you go through churches and see people worshipping different saints, in a way it's the same promulgation of of images, or isn't it?
1: Well, I think that raises a very uh, interesting uh, point uh, because uh, in 843. Uh, When the church decided that there should be such a thing as a Christian art, the argument put forward by John of Damascus was, uh, of course we can't depict the invisible God, of course we can't, but the invisible has become visible, the the word has become flesh, and for that reason Christian art is not simply an optional extra, but it is actually fundamental to the faith, Uh, and from that I think you might argue that whatever Jonathan has said and others have said about uh, being able to bring abstract art and other kinds of work into a cathedral and church I entirely agree uh, in the end there must be something in the cathedral I think which indicates the fact that the word has become flesh and right from the t- origins of Christian art in the uh, third century in the in the catacombs, there were attempts to depict Jesus Christ, not God, and that's why uh, Ben and I both groaned a great groan when we uh, when he mentioned the, the the Renaissance paintings of the of the Trinity, which are quite uh, appalling. You wouldn't get that in Orthodoxy. It's totally unorthodox to do that kind of thing. The orthodox thing is to paint the visible become visible, Jesus Christ. Mm.
5: To see
2: Guardian art you have to have an inner eye, as it were. Um, in the Bavarian uh, Museum of Art in Munich uh, they have collected a great they have a, a large collection which tells me when I visited it, or told me when I visited it, more about the pathology of the history of Religion in Bavaria <laughs> through the years um, than it necessarily did about god uh, so so in a sense, each art form is going to have a, a very large percent of cultural um, extras that and the one needs the inner eye to discover the godliness. In some of those things, and um, so I'm encouraged when people say that we actually need less art of better quality um, in our cathedrals. And um, I'd be very concerned if it, you know, if it, they just became um, village art galleries.
5: Yes, would that that were an easy thing to do? That the, the capacity to discern what is and is not um, simply a form of sort of cultural accretion, um, and what is of God is, you know, a perennial difficulty in doctrine, let alone in art. And um, and the, the, the inner eye might has the risk of suggesting that one could actually achieve a position where one had clear a clear view. And I think that that it's much messier than that. That as it were, it's a perpetual and communal process of discernment where you constantly revisit the tradition that you've inherited and, and seek to test it so that you can work out actually what may have been a wrong turn or a misleading um, lens or you know that sort of thing. So it's, it's, a, it's a collective task and a very important one. Um, and although I wouldn't want to overdraw the analogy between art and doctrinal tradition, they are both traditions and they're both vulnerable to these sorts of distortions.
0: For more information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.